Well, we'll come to the time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why this matters at all, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5? If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 474. If you have your own Bible and you don't know where that is, if you find Psalms right in the, in the middle, keep going to the right, you'll hit Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, when you found that, would you stand together with me? And I'll read this passage for us. No, uh, no lie at all. This is going to be a little bit of a hard one today. If, uh, if you were not prepared, <laughs> here we go. This is what Solomon says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. And you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool where there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are hebel, are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and to speak to us through His Word. Living God, we come now to Your Word. We ask that You would speak to each of our hearts powerfully through it. I'm trusting that, God, that You're going to work through the preparation that I've done through this week and You will accomplish what it is that You want to accomplish in each one of our hearts through it. You've already accomplished the work in my own heart. I pray You do that very same thing in each one of us today. You promise us in your word that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void to you. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, they weren't posted anywhere, and if you had asked us, we probably wouldn't be able to name all of them, but in the house that I grew up in as a young boy, we had a set of house rules that were known and strictly enforced. My guess is probably the same in your house where you grew up. So in our house, growing up, muddy shoes were not permitted past the front door of our home, nor were, when you wore socks, you weren't permitted to wear them outside the front door. In the house that I grew up in, a foul language was not permitted to be spoken, nor was alcohol allowed to be consumed. And in our house, when you landed on go, when you played the game of Monopoly, if you landed right on that space, you got $400, not just the standard $200 when you pass go. You get $400. Because they weren't posted anywhere, very often the only way you learned what these rules were as an outsider was if you violated them. 
So let's say you came over, you're playing a game of Monopoly with us, and you're the banker. If I land on go, and you only give me $200, everyone at the table is going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. He gets another 200 And listen, don't bother. Don't bother going to the box to try to pull the rules out. No, no, sorry. Guess what? Welcome to the Parker House. And here, when I land on go, and don't just pass it, I get $400, not 200 Welcome. That's how it was. But here's the thing. Even knowing all those house rules, either from gradual indifference over time or just a kind of assumed amnesty because we're in a rush. i got to hurry. I don't have time. We broke those house rules all the time and regularly had to be reminded of what was expected. Take it up to the next level. In a court of law, disregarding the house rules of that courtroom or of the judge who's presiding over that courthouse, is referred to as contempt. Not contempt in the sense of having a deep-seated hatred for someone, but contempt in a legal sense of defying the authority, justice, and dignity of that court, which is an indictable offense, violating the house rules of the court. But in either one of those cases, I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons we break those house rules all the time is because, among other things, we simply have divided loyalties. Divided loyalties. Okay, we, we want to follow what we understand the house rules to be, and yet we also want to follow our own desires. We want to follow our own rules, right? And whenever those two things come into conflict with one another, our tendency is very often to want to side with the latter, we want to side with our own set of rules even when they do cause us to be in contempt of the house rules. We're continuing this series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes called A Chasing After the Wind. Right from the beginning, we followed along with Solomon's statement and then subsequent testing and exploration of his thesis that he began the book with, namely, that everything we see, Everything we see in this world, this natural world that we see, we touch, we feel, it is hebel. It is this Hebrew word translated here in a New International Version as meaningless, but when literally translated just means mist, vapor, or breath. If you weren't with us last week, something really interesting we discovered that Solomon pointed out for us as a part of that exploration was that because we are, all of us, made in the image and likeness of a God who exists in eternal, unbroken community within himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we're designed in his image and likeness, we are designed for relationship. We're designed for community as well. What Solomon pointed out was that whenever we try to live in denial or defiance of that reality, in contempt of that reality, those attitudes and actions are also hebel, that they destroy relationship and community that we were designed for with one another. Now, last week we focused on primarily how that community that we were designed for plays out in the context of our relationships with other people. Now, this morning in today's passage, what Solomon is going to focus on next is how that community we were designed for plays out in our relationship with God. And continuing that that same theme of a created order, Solomon's going to point out that because God is unified, He is undivided within Himself, He also expects our undivided worship as well from those that He created. 
He expects our undivided worship of him. Which, honestly, that, that should be pretty obvious to us. That should be pretty obvious considering there's virtually no other committed relationship anywhere that's permissive of divided loyalties. It's a truth which Jesus perfectly summed up in the New Testament, Matthew 6, when he said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We'll get into this more as we dig in deeper here, but suffice it to say at this point, God has his own set of house rules. He has his own set of house rules for his children with whom he's in community with. And to live in defiance or denial of those rules will find us in contempt of him, which unsurprisingly is deeply damaging to our community with him. So in order to understand just what God's house rules are as well as what divided worship that destroys our community with him looks like, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you guarding your steps in the house of God and then guarding your mouth in the house of God. Not just those two things, guarding your steps and guarding your mouth in the house of God. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as we look at what Solomon has to tell us here about undivided worship. So let's look first of all at guarding your steps in the house of God. Guarding your steps in the house of God. Look at me at the beginning of verse 1. Solomon begins here by telling us, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Now, we looked at this a little bit in our series on prayer in fall of this past year, but I think right out of the gate, before we can talk about anything else, we need to be clear, we need to agree on what Solomon means when he says, house of God. When you guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What, what is that? We need to know what he means by that, because listen, my, my wife texts me, and says, hey, we got guests coming over tonight. Can you set the table? Be sure to use the nice dishes. I'm a guy. I don't know what that is. And so I better at least text her back and be like, what are the nice dishes? What does that mean? Otherwise, I'm going to be setting the table again in 30 minutes. So we need to know, well, what does he mean, the house of God? Now, if you weren't with us for that first message in the series on prayer, it was talking about Jesus. He came into the temple and he was clearing the temple out. And his rebuke of that place was he said, my house is to be a house of prayer. And what we said, first of all, was that to describe anything as a house of blank, a house of something means that you can characterize that place with that thing, that you'd be sure to find that thing there. So, you know, a house of mirrors, we're going to find a lot of mirrors there. International house of pancakes, we're going to find pancakes there for sure. So, for Solomon to speak of a house of God means that it's a place where we're going to be able to characterize it with God's presence. God is definitely there. But the second thing we've said was that while the places that we most often think of when we hear house of God, in which Jesus was specifically referring to when he cleansed the temple, is the church, is the temple, right? We think of, okay, we're coming to the house of God. We think of it as this building, right? I mean, and Solomon, he, he's going to be uh, someone who can easily speak to that because God commissioned him to build the first temple in Jerusalem. But what we also know from the Bible is that since the death 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the place where God's Spirit now dwells is no longer in a building. It's in the hearts and minds of those who put their faith in Jesus, which means ultimately God's people themselves are now the house of God. All right, so, so you, you, you don't go to church on Sunday morning. The church gathers together here in this building. That, that, that's what that means now. God's Spirit lives in us. And I think we need to have that clearly in our minds because if we don't, we can swerve off into all kinds of silliness, starting to imagine that God's house rules only apply when we're in a church. When I go to the church building, that's when the house rules apply. Everywhere else I can do what I want. No. So collecting all this together now, I think what Solomon means here when he talks about going to the house of God, it's simply referring to any time or any way in which we intentionally engage with God in that community with Him. That's what it means to go to the house of God. So when we are praying, when we're reading His Word, when we're singing to Him, when we gather together with other uh, uh, children of God, that's what it means to go to the house of God. And with that understanding in mind, I think we can then understand much more clearly what exactly some of God's house rules are as we engage in that community with Him. And the first one we see here is, as He said, guard your steps. That's the first house rule. Guard your steps. Now the sense of that word guard in the Hebrew is just take care. Be careful, which if you think about it, that's exactly the kind of rule your own parents likely had for you whenever you were around valuable stuff. You were playing around valuable things. You're in a museum. You're in a place with a bunch of breakable things. They're going to be like, take care. Watch what you're doing. Don't just run around here. There's lots of valuable things around here. Well, for the Christian, nothing could be of higher value and worth than God to be in His Presence. And that's evidenced in lots of places in God's Word, specifically uh, God's Word to His people in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, where He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Or Jesus' own words, Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things, all these other needs and worries and desires you have, they'll be added to you as well. Again, this is not because God has some kind of vain desire for our attention. He's like, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at me, please. Nor is, is Solomon saying that we need to take care because God is fragile like mom's nice dishes. No. What Solomon is saying here, he's saying to guard your steps when you go into the house of God because life works best. Life works best when it is centered on the God who made us and who loves us. That's what he means. Why? Because we were designed for that. We were designed to be in community with him. So life works best when he is valued above all things. What I find most interesting about this first part of our passage is the way Solomon says we guard our steps. What does it mean to guard our steps? He tells us here, and you see it in the second half of verse 1. Look with me there. He says, Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Okay, so how do we guard our steps in the house of God? We, we come into His presence with an attitude of humility, an attitude of reverence and submission. I think that's what Solomon's getting at here. We come near to listen rather than primarily just to speak. 
We come to, to, to learn, to, to receive, rather than to instruct God, to tell him about a bunch of stuff that he probably doesn't know already. That's what Solomon's going to go on to say is the sacrifice of fools to do that. Which I think, if you, if you take that idea and put it in a classroom setting, it makes perfect sense. Whether you're in school right now or you just remember being there, all of us probably know that guy or, or have seen that guy who the whole time through the lecture, professor's talking, he's just like, text, text, text. Or he's talking to his buddy, hey, did you see that thing? Totally ignoring the teacher. Or the guy who's constantly putting up his hand, ooh. And then the questions he gives are these super long-winded questions that are really just trying to display how much he knows about the subject. If you don't think you have that guy in your class, it may be you. So <laughs> there is that guy. Now, aside from being really, really annoying, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it's, it's arrogant, it's foolish. It's the speech of fools coming with many words that Solomon refers to there at the end of verse 3. It's coming into an environment that's intended for you to learn and acting at best like you don't have anything to learn from that person or at worst like you should be the one teaching them. And it's foolish to come into God's presence like that. It's like you're going to teach him something. You won't. But if you think we don't do this exact same thing when it comes to how we relate to God, just consider one example that Jesus gives talking about arrogant, hasty, foolish speech in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, where he's contrasting the prayer of a Pharisee and of a tax collector. The Pharisee, he, he strides into the, the temple just like everyone's just lucky to have him there, including God. And Jesus says, first of all, he prays a prayer about himself. Now, if that already doesn't tell you something's off, I don't know what does. But listen to the prayer that he prays here. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, okay, he, yeah, he said thank you. Those words were in there. But is there anything after those words, thank you, that wasn't just lifting up himself, boasting about his accomplishments, valuing himself above God? No. We can shake our heads. We can, oh, foolish. We can do that to the Pharisee. But I think we do this exact same thing when we come to God with our prayers whether you're praying on your own, you're praying with another person, and let's just say you're praying and you go on. We do this, you go on for about 10 minutes, really just describing to God how poorly he's handling the situation. Telling God, you know, God, I really, I really don't understand why you would let that person do that to me. It doesn't seem like the wisest thing to me. I don't know why you would let my child run off and follow after that. I don't know why you'd let that person do this or that instructing God about how he's getting it wrong, and then offering up all kinds of very helpful, much more productive solutions, which, by the way, we happen to be unsuccessfully doing at the moment, all to just close out our prayer but just saying, but you know, but I'm trusting you, God, so you know, your will be done. Amen. Really? I believe Solomon's saying that is the sacrifice of fools. But in beautiful contrast to that, listen to the prayer of the tax collector. A guy who, who's probably got a list of failures two miles long, and yet in humble simplicity, 
that both acknowledges where he is and who he's speaking to, Jesus says he stands at a distance. He won't even raise his eyes toward heaven. And he beats his breasts and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. You know what he's doing? You see what's different? He's coming primarily to listen, not to speak. He wants to hear from God, not say a bunch of stuff to him. And he's coming with an attitude of submission, understanding that God already knows his heart. He's not going to tell God anything he doesn't already know. And because he understands that, he knows he can pray simply. He knows he can let his words be few. I think that's, that's what Solomon is truly getting at there in verse 2 when he says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. He's not saying, hey, God is in heaven, so you shut your mouth. How dare you speak a word to him? No. He's saying, God is in heaven, so he knows. He understands. He gets it. And he knows and understands and gets it better than you do, infinitely more than you do. So you can just rest in that. He's trying to take all the stress out of our community with God and just say, just rest in the fact that he knows. Come humbly before him. Ask for the grace and mercy you need, trusting that he knows best what you need. In fact, Jesus' own teaching on prayer, Matthew 6, he says almost exactly the same thing. Listen, when you pray, do not Keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay, so that's guarding your steps in the house of God. Coming in with a humble trust. Doesn't mean don't speak to Him, but come primarily to listen, to receive not to speak. That's how we guard our steps. Last thing we'll look at is guarding your mouth in the house of God. Guarding your mouth. The story is told of Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, who after completing a master's degree and then pursuing a career in law, was traveling home the summer of 1505 and he was caught in a violent thunderstorm. Lightning struck really close to him and threw him off his horse. And in fear and panic, he cried out, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. These are his words. And, as the story goes, much to his father's disgust and anger, he did, in fact, honor his vow. He, he left his pursuit of law and entered into the monastery to become a monk. That was the beginning of Martin Luther's conversion. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a position like Luther's before where you were terrified of some moment of facing something and in fear and panic you made a vow to someone, maybe even God, but then later, <clears throat> I don't know, you kind of regretted it. You were, I don't know, uh, I can think of a number of occasions in my own life where uh, I was desperate not to get reported to my parents by my brother and sister, maybe some friends in school, they didn't want to get reported to the teacher. I vowed to them, just, just please don't say anything and I'll, I'll give you all my Halloween candy. And then later on, once I'm out of the crisis, I, I wondered why I'd even done that. And then, of course, I had this internal monologue with myself, and I'm like, do I really have to give them all the candy? Maybe just a big handful of Kit Kats? How much do I have to give? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that before, but there's, 
When it comes to vows, there's all kinds of good and bad examples in the Bible that we have of people making vows. We have uh, Hannah, uh, the mother of Samuel, who, who vowed to God that she would dedicate her child to God if only God would grant her a son. To someone like Jephthah, who foolishly vowed to sacrifice to God the first thing that walked out of his door when he got home, if only God would give him victory over the Ammonite army. But here's the thing. In each and every one of those cases, regardless of how they felt after they'd made the vow, every single one of those people followed through on what they had promised. They followed through on what they had promised. Even Jephthah, who had offered to, to offer up as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of, his, out of his house if he returned home in peace, only to watch in horror as his daughter came running out of the house to greet him when he came home after the battle. Look at me at verse 4. Solomon says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Which means, God's second house rule as we engage in community with Him is this. When you make a vow to God, you're expected to keep it. When you make a vow to God or in God's presence with Him as witness, you're expected to fulfill it. Or as Solomon says at the end of verse 6, Guard your mouth in God's house, lest our mouth leads us into sin, presumably, from making a vow and then not following through on it. Now, in our day and age, we don't have that many places anymore where we make a lot of vows. This isn't maybe a very common practice anymore. Maybe in a, a courtroom, you place your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We, we make vows to one another in our uh, wedding ceremony. We vow to each other to, to be faithful regardless of the circumstances. Even in our uh, church membership covenant, we, we vow, we promise to hold one another accountable to this agreed-upon set of standards of godly living and community. We, we vow that, we promise that to one another. We talked uh, last week, as it relates to community, about just what an essential part accountability is to the health and the strength of community. And in the end, what God is saying here is simply this, as it relates to the health and community of our relationship with Him, He too is going to hold us accountable for the vows we make. He's going to hold us accountable. But for a lot of us, that's where the problem starts to come in. Author Stephen Meyer says it this way, It's always easier to be courageously obedient in your own mind than it is to do what you're required to do, what you vowed to do right now. I think that's absolutely true. Particularly, the stakes are high, right? You're feeling desperate. You're out of control. It's all too easy to throw up a, a rash vow, with, even with the best intentions of fulfilling it, but then neglect to follow through once the danger is past. God, just, just help me, please. I, I promise I'll read my Bible more. I promise I'll, I'll live more of a life dedicated to you. Whatever it is, it's easy in that moment to just throw these things off and then not follow through. And even more troubling than that is the way vows like this can expose a, really an agnosticism within us. Agnosticism is just like the belief in God in general, just sort of this creative force out there, but not the, the personal God of the Bible. These kind of rash vows can reveal an agnosticism hidden just under the surface of our professed faith. In his book on Ecclesiastes, uh, author David Gibson, he 
describes it like this. Consider the person, he says, who says, Lord, I'm in a really tight corner here, but if you could get me out of it, I promise I'll serve you with my whole life. And then the crisis passes, and of course, he never gives God a second thought. Why? Well, God's probably not really there. The person was just stuck and needed something to say. It's just words. And what Solomon is saying here, and he's warning us about, is that according to God's house rules, it's not just words to him. And he will hold us accountable for what we vow, which is why Solomon goes on to say in verse 5, it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. But perhaps most troubling at all, most troubling of all, is a vow made that's it's made simply for show, for pretense either to impress God or impress people around us, to fake a depth of spiritual maturity, a closeness of community where, in fact, it doesn't exist or it's incredibly shallow. One of the most terrifying examples we see of this, if you were with us a year ago in our series through Acts, Acts 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you don't know this story, uh, in the days of the early church, there's a man named Barnabas who sells a piece of land and he takes all the prophets, he lays it at the apostles' feet and gives it to the church in order to support the work of the early ministry that's taking place there. Well, when they see the the praise and the, the fanfare that comes from this act of generosity, Ananias and his wife conspire together to sell a piece of property and give money to the church as well. So far, so good, although I think we'd already say their, their motivation is kind of off. The problem that the story highlights was that they gave the money to the church telling everyone that they had just sold the property and now they're giving the money to the church and God when the reality was they were secretly keeping back some of the profits for themselves. Now, as Peter rightly said to them, there was absolutely no problem in keeping the money. No problem. The property was theirs to sell or not sell. The money was theirs to give or not give. Totally theirs. But this is precisely where that idea of divided worship, divided loyalty starts to come in because they made a vow to sell the property and give the profits to support the church. And they told everyone that's what they'd done. But in lying about how much they had made from this sale, telling everyone that it was the full amount, they were also seeking to serve their own needs serve their own desires at the same time. The chilling end of that story is that both Ananias and his wife, they're confronted, and when they continue to lie about the sale of the land, proving they have no intention of really fulfilling their vow, Peter says to them, you have not lied to men, but to God. And both of them in that moment fall down dead. They're taken out and buried. Luke says, great fear took over the church when they heard about this. Yeah. And in light of all that, I think a question that's worth considering for each and every one of us here this morning is this. What have I vowed to God that I haven't yet fulfilled? What are those things that you promised to Him in that moment of crisis, that moment of uh, desperation? Okay, God, just help me out of this and I will. What have you promised to God that you have not yet fulfilled? What have you promised to others with God as your witness? Those of you who are married here today, you made those vows in the presence of God and His people. What have you promised to others with Him as witness that you have failed to follow through on? 
That can be all kinds of reasons. All kinds of reasons about why we fail to follow through. Maybe you made that vow with the best of intentions, but you were just naive about your ability to fulfill it. Maybe you made that, made that vow rashly uh, because you wanted to look really generous, look really spiritual to others, but now you no longer feel motivated to keep up the act. Or maybe you made that vow in the heat of a moment of some crisis with no intention of ever fulfilling it. But whatever the reason, meant it, didn't mean it, made it by mistake, God's reply of his word here is still fulfill your vow. Fulfill it. Give whatever you promised. Release whatever you swore on oath to give up. Fulfill your vow. And maybe you hear that and you want to push back. You want to be like, whoa, whoa, what? Hang on a second. Excuse me? Okay, why does God have to be such an intractable jerk about this? Okay, so I made a mistake. Okay, I was too hasty in my words. Sorry, okay, so what happened to God being a God of love and grace and compassion? Well, the first thing I would say is, if you just did this, that's God's love, grace, and compassion to you. Second thing I would say is, I would tell you that this is exactly what love and grace and compassion look like in the context of true community, where accountability is actually being practiced. And if you want to respond like, okay, well then I, I, I don't want re- accountability in this relationship, I'd want to invite you to consider the consequences of that. Just think about the implications of that. Consider what it would actually look like to be in a relationship with anyone, let alone God, where they no longer had to be responsible for their words anymore. They didn't have to be responsible for any promises they made to you, all bets are off. Kind of kind of stops looking like a relationship anymore, doesn't it? And the reason it stops looking like a relationship anymore is because community, real true community, requires accountability. It requires it. So to say you want to have a relationship with God that doesn't have accountability, what you're really saying is you don't want a relationship with Him at all. It needs that accountability. Remember the words that Jesus said in Matthew 6. We'll close with this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in the end, the ultimate reason you may be unable to fulfill what you vowed to God or before God is because you're simply trying to serve two masters. Your loyalties are divided between God and yourself. And I don't know all of you. I don't know all your stories. I don't know where you're at this morning or how this strikes you, but my guess is after hearing this, some of you realize and me, me and God have got some work to do. We've got some work to do after this service. Maybe you realize, I, I, I have been offering up divided worship to God. I haven't been guarding my steps when I come into the house of God. I, I'm trying to instruct God about how he should run things instead of coming to listen and learn from him about what his will and plans is. Maybe you, you realize, I, I have vowed something to God. I told him I was going to do this. 
I promised him that if this happened, I would, and I haven't followed through. You know you've broken the house rules. And as a result, you can feel the distance in your relationship with God right now. If you find yourself there here this morning, as I have many times in my own life, if you're clueless of where to start, I think one of the first places we can look to find a secure footing again is to come to God's Word, come to His revelation of Himself to us in places like Hebrews chapter 4. It's one of my favorite places in God's Word. To remind us of what's true in that moment. We need to be reminded of what's true. I'm not going to read it, but we'll have it up on the screen. Hebrews 4, it tells us we can still hold on to our faith in moments like this when we remember that our God who is in heaven, which Solomon rightly told us in our passage, our God who is in heaven is also a merciful high priest. He's a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. And that although his throne that he sits on is a throne of judgment, it's also a throne of grace that we can still approach in our time of need and find mercy and grace. I found this again and again an incredibly helpful place to begin to remind myself that though my community, my relationship with God may be damaged because I'm breaking the house rules, it's not lost completely. It's not lost completely. And we can do this. We can always do this. We can come before the throne of grace, find mercy, find grace in a time of need because our God fulfilled the vow that he made to us all the way back in the beginning. When sin first entered into creation and fractured our relationship, fractured our community with him, we're in that moment of our greatest need God vowed to send a rescuer, to send a savior, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and who would reconcile the distance that was created between us. And now each year at Christmas time, two weeks from now when we celebrate Easter, when we do that each year, that's a reminder to us again and again and again that God kept that vow to us. He's a God who is faithful to his vows and what he promised to do. He fulfills what he promised to us. And they're also a reminder that no matter how far we've strayed, no matter how badly we've broken the house rules, our access to God through Jesus remains open. It remains open. That though we are faithless, still divided at times in our worship, Our undivided Savior remains ever faithful to us. Let's pray. I'd ask those of you, if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward at this time. Father in heaven, We need to come again to your throne of grace. There's so many ways in our lives, so many ways that we live and act. We don't guard our steps when we come into your presence. 
Sometimes it's because of our own foolishness. Sometimes it's because we become so familiar in our relationship with you that we no longer remember the gravity of where we are and the only means by which we can stand in your presence. We forget that. Forgive us. But some of us this morning, we know we've made vows to you. We've promised you stuff, and we haven't followed through yet. And it's your grace and mercy to us right now that we're still here. We still have a chance to follow through. Give us the wisdom. Give us the grace. Give us the encouragement to follow through on what we promised. Trusting that when we act in obedience towards you, you are faithful and just. You forgive us of our failures, and you restore that broken community with you. We praise you for this goodness. We thank you for it. We thank you for the consistent reminders of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.